How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 147. We actually hit a milestone in this past week, Zeke. Eh? A sneaky, sneaky milestone. Low key? Yeah. Within the last two minutes of last week's episode, we crossed the barrier for 200 hours of Cinema Sideshow goodness. That's a lot. With our, with our voices, Zeke. Kind of crazy to think 200 hours of us talking. Yeah, I mean... Has anyone put, we, up, put up with us for 200 hours? Uh, There's probably a few people. <laughs> Have we talked 200 hours within a week? Is it possible? No, but, I don't think it is possible, but, is it? Well, Mathematically we, we speaking, made it happen seven somehow. Times 24? If we talk fast enough, time speeds up. It's like relativity. Yeah, sure. Is that how it works? That's, yeah, okay. Fair I'm enough. not a math teacher, so... <laughs> or a science teacher. Oh, that, that's fair enough. Um, well, I just wanted to point that out. Because it was a cool milestone ahead of another milestone that we're a few weeks away from, but we'll get there Just when we croaching we'll in there. on a month. Yeah, um, yeah. exciting times for, for the double. The one, one, what is it? One fifty-six and one fifty. Both of them are yeah, important yeah. Episodes. That's that's true. Actually, you got the anniversary and then the well, the milestone and then the anniversary. Even though they're both milestones, but I know what you mean. Yeah, I know what you mean. I hope our audience knows what what we mean. <laughs> if they yeah, can keep well, up, it's, it's not it's their fault. Uh, it's been a look when you like. It's so crazy when you go on the Spotify page and you just go, just scroll through. Yeah, I like I like doing that to some people. Just scroll, 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 and then and just like their face slowly turns. It's like, one of my oh, favorite oh things my when I like first Jurassic meet someone, music. like plugging the fact that I do a podcast because they immediately go, <laughs> oh, it's weird. Like I was saying this to you off the air, where it's like um, when someone comes over to my house for the first time. Hi, I'm Zeke. Check out my I'm podcast. Like, I'm like, I brag about having like walls of DVDs, and I'm like, basically, I have a blockbuster at my house, and it's just to gauge, <laughs> it's just to gauge if they're actually into movies and stuff, and uh, and then yeah, the podcast, and then because the, the, I think the natural reaction nowadays in the 21st century is everyone has a podcast, but everyone has like five episodes of a podcast. I'm like, no, no. It's 145 weeks worth of stuff, or 147 weeks now. So yeah, it's, it's a very it's, it's a hurdle. You got to get it out quick. That's what I've noticed. I've like, but we've done 147. We've when done was when was the moment that you like felt that we crossed the threshold where it just became a routine? I was pretty early. Yeah, I reckon. Well, we did obviously our the the famous or infamous, however you want to put it, Blue Velvet podcast that I think has been wiped from the internet. I it think. doesn't. Yeah. Which is in the shame. memories of of friend of the show Jack Bet. Yeah, yeah, um, on a hard drive somewhere. I'm sure he's probably got. It. He's probably got some stuff. I, I downloaded most of them. Um, I still have YouTube. the shirts he designed. Oh, yeah. I've always. Uh, I was going to one day gauge him to ask to do a cinema sideshow one. Right. Um. Because that was that was one of my favorite parts was having the shirts. <laughs> very <laughs> the very branding. talented very talented artist. Yeah. Well, the reason I bring that up is because we did about. Well, I only was in like half of them, but it was sort of a more free-flowing, spontaneous thing. Yeah. You guys only did like maybe 20, 21 episodes over the course of a year. Yes. And I think once we achieved that, but with like 20 episodes in 20 weeks, I think that's when it felt... Mm. It was quite early for me, personally, but... Yeah, I remember, you know, not to get too introspective before we run into like the rest of the show... Because um, this Stuck is not crying. a this is not a milestone episode too. So two hundred even... hours, it kind of uh, is. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Um, I remember really starting to at least personally wane in the thirties. Um, we were in the like mm. the thirty. I remember that lot of ten. I was starting to be like, oh, this is this is this is getting a bit a lot. Right. And 
I, I think, think it was the, around the 35 mark. We were both we were on productions just constantly. Maybe that was it. Maybe it's just a tough personal part for a like career-based yeah. side. And plus, leaning towards the 40s, we started recording several episodes to then air later mm. um, for but you I, to travel. So, like, we were recording, like, three, four episodes a week at, at, at times. It's true, yeah. But as soon as we got we got back from that trip, that was it. It was fine after yeah, that point. Yeah. Um, it was just cruisy. Plus, we haven't done a pre-record since, like, pre-COVID. Yeah, so. I can't. I can't remember... Like, the funny thing is, it's, like, there's there's probably, like, a 40-episode block where I just, like, it was just, it's just become, like, it was so normative that it, it, I almost can't, it's funny that I can remember episodes when we talk about it on the show, but outside of that, I'm like, man, I don't know what happened between episodes, like, 66 and, like, <laughs> 110, like. Yeah, that's interesting, like, yeah. It's so crazy, especially when we get to end-of-year award stuff, and it's, like, we have to look back at the 52-week block, and it's, like, man, that was in this year. And this year, I think especially is going to be very difficult. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think especially the, because so many of sort of the 2012 big hitters that leaned into the April 2021 Oscar season, we caught on this end of the the show <laughs> seasonal thing. Yeah. So it's really breaking my brain. Like, oh my god, we did Nomadland like yeah, on, on this year. That yeah. like it, things like that kind of throw me off. But yeah, it's interesting. Well, and, speaking um, of contemporary yeah. films, Jake, do you have mm. a fun fact for me from the film of the week? I do, actually, yeah. So, of course, we're talking about Last Night in Soho, which... Oh, I'm excited. To, I'm so excited about this. We'll, we'll get into it, of course. But the fact that I wanted to talk about, which, you know, thankfully I was able to sort of uh, take a second look at it as someone who saw the film twice this past weekend and learning in between those sessions that the the famous ballroom scene, of course, that's sort of leans towards the end of the first act with the two girls sort of morphing in and out of each other, dancing with um, with Matt Smith, of course, was with two very specific exceptions done entirely in camera. So it was all choreographed by the uh, prominently credited uh, Jennifer White. You actually noticed her name quite prominently in the credits on my first viewing, but uh, that choreography of, of the two girls sort of went to duck and weave around the camera and then sneak back behind Matt Smith and... The choreography, that's great. And it's on YouTube. You can find it in one of the B-roll videos that they put out. So I thought that was awesome that mm. they did that all in camera. Well, that's uh, pretty uh, interesting when it comes to a technical side. Um, mm. I'm going to just stick with one which I thought was quite interesting, which sort of plays into the nostalgia side of this film. And obviously it's love or, or loathing of, of nostalgia, which we'll jump mm. into a little later in our review. Uh, the drink ordered by Sandy early on in the film is a Vespa created by Ian Fleming, specifically for the ah. 1953 James Bond novel Casino Royale, which sort of yeah. cross-pollinates, because obviously, as we know, recently the fifth of the Daniel Craig James Bond films has just you know currently come out in cinemas, and of course, the first of that five was indeed Casino Royale. Yeah. So I thought that was quite nifty, obviously, nifty timing, yeah. especially in, you know, before we moved into that dance sequence when uh, Sandy mm. approaches um, the big poster that appears yeah, to yeah. is Thunderball. Which, which is I awesome. can't I can't remember, but um, Edgar Wright talked about having... He swapped, he digitally swapped it out for a different film and then in a preview uh, trailer he showed to Tarantino, he loved that poster so much that he swapped it back to the Bond poster, mm. which I thought was interesting. Some poor VFX guy. <laughs> yeah. 
so obviously the Thunderball for James Bontai. So, but a lot of little nifty Easter eggs and odes mm. to the past in that film we'll be talking about later in the show. Jake, mm. does last night in Soho make the 1100? Obviously, because your poster only goes up to 2018 and this yep. is a contemporary film. It's not on the poster. But would it make your 1100? Absolutely. And I think... You know, I think this film's a little bit more divisive than I assumed it was going to be, reading some of other people's opinions. But with that said, there is so much um, that I really appreciate in this film, thematically, stylistically, in terms of Edgar Wright's direction as a director and his overall filmography. Um, I think it absolutely should be on there, especially thematically. But I don't know about using it, because we talked about it a little bit, but your general overall vibe... I guess was to sort of sleep on the film or yeah look um for me because it, it's tricky because it's like rights films up until like you know i'm gonna jump into it a little bit more when we get into the review mm. for now i'm probably going to say no okay um it wouldn't make my 1100 um not for a uh negative review simply because you know this conveniently although we've now turned into november or out of october mm. would have easily fit in with the october catalog of psychological horrors um that we covered um yeah well this is almost sort of the unofficial fourth entry in our horror span of films what, you a, know? what a what a stretch um and yeah i think you know obviously i would like i inducted midsummer last week into my 1100 so um i just don't see a place for it personally um, but that's I'll right. elaborate further later in the show. Yeah, no, that's all good. Well, have you caught anything in this past week other than last night? So, um, yeah, look, it's continues Zeke's dry run of movies. Um, just <laughs> doesn't it, look. I'm I'm getting into the last, literally the last two or three weeks of of my semester, which is is as you can concur, Jake. It's crunch time, basically. So it's crunch time, baby. You don't get a lot of. Uh, time to sit down and, and watch two hour pieces much as I would love to catch a lot in the next month there's a lot I'm looking forward to um, but to this point I've obviously you know in pre- previous weeks been sticking to the sitcoms um, and have continued that trajectory of the 20 minute doses between mm. writing papers so I've now moved into NBC's uh, Parks and Recreation which is on Netflix all seven seasons and I'm right now in the mid-season three, so... Smashing uh, through it. Smashing through this one, too. I'm enjoying it. Look, to be honest, it's... It, I said this to you off-air, but it, it's really interesting because, obviously, the show started, I think, around 2008 and moved into about 2014. So, that was out of six-year shelf life, and it's very interesting, particularly with this show, for a lot of these actors, they predominantly were successful through SNL or this show. It kind of made them, and definitely made Chris Pratt, and it's very weird seeing a... A chunkier Chris Pratt, pre-blockbuster uh, actor. So that's definitely uh, an interesting thing. And, you know, and I find the show very funny. I think the cast is very well cast. Um, does it hit the same sort of, you know, obviously it has a very office, it has the office format um, presentation, the um, interview-esque style, the documentarian style is the exact okay. same. Um and I actually think I've been enjoying it more than The Office. Um, but I think the, I find the cast more compelling and interesting. But I'm also not like a super lover of The Office. And there are people that are just addicted and adore it. Mm. And for me, The US Office was good. And at times pretty great. 
Um, but it never clicked as much as it does with some people. And it wasn't just those last couple of seasons post-Michael leaving. It just never, for me, hit that next gear. Um, but I'm, I'm happy that I'm actually ticking off all of these, can, like the, the 21st uh, century sitcoms. I, like, I'm glad I've just kind of gone through this tear because now yeah. I can have a real rounded consensus of why I still believe How I Met Your Mother's the best. Or, mm. or communities the strongest because I can actually compare and contrast them now, which is nice. Yeah, you have a wider net. Yeah, it's your, not just I've survey. only watched these two <laughs> and I think these two are the best because they're the only two I've watched over and over again. It's, right. it's nice being able to go through each one and be like, look, this season's really... I, I was really glad to see Rashida Jones get like a bigger role on a show. It's nice. Yeah, um, yeah. I think her character was... Like you said, you said to me off off air yesterday... It's like she was aware that she was getting written in to get written out, as you, as you said. Right, of the, the office, yeah. Of the she office, knew she was so. the, the third wheel in a, in a love triangle that would sort itself out relatively quickly in the grand scheme of the show. Very quick. So, like, within a season or two, as opposed to ten, so... Um, um, so she was quite self-aware of that, and then taking what she learned from the office and, I guess, putting it in this show. Yeah, it's great. I think Amy Poehler's performance is my favourite. She's mm. just amazing and hilarious, and... Um, I've always liked her bits on SNL and, uh, I started watching, like I was sitting down with Liam, um, and we were just watching SNL skits and they're just funny. Some of them, they're just like that. Like, it's really interesting to see how SNL is sort of the, for a lot of those startup comedians too. It's a, it's a big, um, step yeah. for like people like Pete Davidson and stuff, which we talked about, you know, on our like Staten Island episode and such. So um, it's really interesting how the system works and sort of, um, but yeah, it's, uh, overall it's been a pretty sound show. Um, I don't think I'm, I'm enjoying, it. I actually am missing new girl, which is kind of crazy. You just rewatch it again. <laughs> yeah. Which obviously is a, maybe a testament to that show. Maybe I need to give it a more positive and warm reception, but this show is pretty positive on it in the first place. I think so. Yeah. But it's funny that I'm like, I keep seeing the thumbnail for the last episode come up and I'm like, Oh, I finished that show. Yeah. 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 Like, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm hoping this summer is going to be a summer of just movie loving over um, shows because, um, you know, I think for the last two months of this show, it's just been nothing but TV show commenting. Mm. So, I, which, which is I, okay. isn't a bad thing. It's still a, a medium, but it's especially with this next month, we got some we got some big stuff coming out. So yeah, no, well, it's it's very exciting. What the, about you? Um, the only thing I caught in the last week, which I think it was actually quite a relevant film to watch in regards to our show because of its relation not only to the, this film of the week, but also another film we did recently called Annette, which is one of your favourite films of the year, Zeke. You loved Annette, didn't you? Stale popcorn frontrunner. <laughs> Shortlisted. <laughs> so, of course, the music in that film was done by The Sparks, or uh, more commonly known now, I suppose, thanks to the title of this documentary, mm. The Sparks Brothers, which is Edgar Wright's first documentary that he directed. It came out earlier this year in Luna. I rented it off YouTube, which... Again, continues my streak of the only films I rent on YouTube are Universal films, which is just like a massive coincidence. Did they talk about how much in love they were with each other? What, the in, brothers? Yeah, in, okay. in, in song. <laughs> yes. That they're so in love. They do talk a little bit about Annette. It gets like a two-minute thing okay. towards the very end. But um, it's a very ambitious, large documentary. It's like two hours, 20 minutes. Um, it's very energetic. you got the Edgar Wright sort of um, trademark editing and energy um, which we will talk about much more interestingly in this film of the week. Uh, so it does move at a really fast pace, and I was very invested, very intrigued, very interested in, in these two brothers, uh, Ron and Russell, 
who of course uh, have been running around since I, I think the sixties. I, I think it was the sixties, if not the fifties. But they've been around for a long, long, long time, and obviously still working, still making stuff. And I think this documentary it sort of goes into and even acknowledges the risk of doing a documentary about a group that's so mysterious mm-hmm. and so quirky and and weird and interesting and you know all of these all of the the verbiage you want to use, but. I think it, it it keeps that mystery, but it also goes far enough to really explain to a layman like me that would have otherwise been uh, almost overwhelmed by the amount of information and, and detail that this documentary goes in about their careers in a, in a very linear way, like starting this decade, then this decade, then this decade, and, and planting like you know the album covers and what you know they look like and, and all the visual uh, evolutionary changes through their music and their image as it all goes on, which all really pays off towards the end when they go into a gig they did that lasted 21 days where they played every single album from back to front or front to back, you know, for 21 days straight, all in London. I think it was London that they played in, which was mind-boggling in a sense because I think it was something along the lines of 280 songs that they had to learn and memorize and and get going for, what, three weeks of gigging. That is absolutely bonkers. I know, like, we sort of have that internal wish that when we finally see the Cat Empire uh, for one last time in a, in a, well, it's going to be next month now, it's a few months, mm. thanks to border issues. Um, we sort of have that desire, can they just play every song they've ever written? Yeah. And like the impossibility well, of that. Well, there's a second night now in WA, so. <laughs> that is true, yeah. There might be a whole different conversation to happen off the air. <laughs> well, that's the thing, and I think um, it's such an absurd thing to expect out of a live gig, but the fact that these guys did it, Mm. and figured out the, the, the practicality. And I think that moment really works in this doco because they spent the previous two hours slowly going through their career and their change in style and the uniqueness of their sound. Mm-hmm. And um, the amount of talking heads they have is just insane. Like they get tons of, you know, writers and comedians and song producers and all of that. And Edgar even puts himself for one of the talking heads, which I was like, oh, did we really need that? The film's already 141 minutes long, but... Um, like I said, it definitely could have been shorter, but I was never, like, bored. Like, it kind of went in that progression of I was interested and intrigued by these guys mm. and then the mystery behind them and what made them so unique, which was just, like, a combination of things in terms of hitting genres of music before they existed, like, you know, doing synth tracks in the 70s as opposed to doing them in the 80s or, like, doing things that the Beatles were famous for but predating that and even just, like, their lyrical choices of um, one of the talking heads... I want to get her name really quickly. April Richardson, who's a stand-up, she talked about how songs are typically one of two things. Whether, you know, will you please sleep with me or do not ruin the night. And how, you know, these guys are making songs about popping zits and all sorts of random things that don't really correlate with that binary Mm. objective thing of what songs typically are, you know, pop music and all that. So I think it, it dwells really deeply almost to a fault in terms of it is long it feels almost unapproachable because there's so much information being thrown at you as for a layman like if you're a fan of these guys then like you're gonna eat this up yeah i'm just like you know i've heard a couple of their songs in passing but you know this town ain't big enough for the both of us for example but um otherwise a complete layman to their music and only know them from annette which you know neither of us were huge fans of annette and i don't think it's necessarily their fault i mean obviously the song that you referenced earlier, we've sort of made fun of it, but that that's part of their quirky charm is they they get away with writing songs that are weird and strange like yeah. that song is. Well, yeah, 
I'm not going to shy away. I think that the songs were one of the the biggest critiques I had of Annette. So interesting, yeah. Um, not saying that all this song, but hey, like every musician, every artist, there are hits, there are misses. It's it's okay to yeah. Well, like that's you said, two hundred eighty songs. Not all two hundred eighty songs are going to be hits. Like it's just like I think that's the truth of it. Yeah. Well, that's it, and it goes into that, and it talks about some of the stuff that it never got that formulaic, but the you know there were swings and ebbs and flowing of their career and their songs and the reception yeah. to them and all of that. So, like, it goes into all that. So, it's a, it's a beautiful deep dive on on the Sparks. And I think it's great for that reason. I bumped my score up at the very end to, I think, a three and a half just because I was, like, I'm surprised by how invested I am in this. Yeah. So, kudos to, to Edgar. Great documentary. Um, kind of wish I saw it at Luna, like, when they played it earlier in the year. But, oh, well. Now you can watch it on YouTube. But, yeah, that's the only thing I've caught in the last week. Otherwise, I've, again, I thought it was appropriate obviously for the director no dramas well do you have anything to add in career section before we move into the film of the week jake ah not really i still got to edit that thing i said i was going to edit last (laughs) week (laughs) that money that money just sitting in a pile somewhere i need to dig it up but no dramas well it is time for us to move into our film of the week but jake what are we watching this week on the show zeke we're watching last night in soho something in my dreams. There was a girl. And you are? Sandy. I got this kind of gift. I can see people, places, things others can't. This is the closest most people ever get to their dreams. They're not just dreams. Jack, I don't want to do this. You think you can just walk away? They really happened. What did you see? A young girl passionate about fashion design is mysteriously able to enter into the 1960s where she encounters her idol, a dazzling wannabe singer. But the 1960s London is not what it seems, and time seems to be falling apart with shady consequences. Shady, you say? Odd description. There were no shady shady characters in this film. Well, there were (laughs) shades. (laughs) Alrighty, this is Edgar Wright's latest film... Uh, and as part of the British International Film Festival. Yeah, the yeah. Biffs. Yeah, this film doesn't come out for another couple of weeks, so we, we caught it, and it makes total sense, having seen it. Now it's like, ah, oh, yeah, this is definitely him going back to his British roots in a lot of ways, in terms of who he's working with, the cast, the locations, all of that jazz. Yeah. It's very... Yeah. You can call it a love letter to London, though. It's a letter. <laughs> it's a letter, all right. Um... I think, yeah, so... It's a letter with, like, cursive writing, but bloodstains. Yeah, yeah, a lot of asterisks around, (laughs) all over the place. I think it's funny because... So, I think, you know, the audience has known, I've been talking about this for a while, this has been my most anticipated film of the year since a while, 
as far as I mean, like I, the feeling I had for this film was the same feeling I had for Nomadland last year. Just spending like yeah. nine months, just like excited to see this thing for sure. And especially after they dropped the trailer in May, having the you know the log line heard about oh Edgar Wright, you know Thomas and Mackenzie, Anya Taylor Joy, you know time travel, sixties fashion, and then seeing the trailer and realizing like oh this is straight up going to be a horror film. This looks incredible, but also having virtually no dialogue no story explanation, just all visuals and tone. I was so excited to see this film. Mm. So I saw it twice. Um, saw it with you the second time on the Saturday. So I've had plenty of time to digest and see how things all fall in, in place. I think generally it's pretty excellent. I do have nitpicks. I do have plenty of nitpicks mm-hmm. all over the place. Um, and I think the general conception is a lot of people do like this film, but have lots of issues with the script some people have lots of issues with just the themes and the way they go about expressing those themes, which I completely disagree with. And we'll, we'll get into that once we get into real spoiler territory. Because I think a lot of this film was about the surprise, which you definitely would have felt having not even seen that first trailer that I just talked yeah, about. Yeah, I like obviously, I've, and I've said this consensus on the show before, I'm a firm believer of if I like the director and I've liked consistently like the director, I don't need to be sold on going to see their next movie um and then when you go into a film completely blind you really are just giving yourself completely and objectively to the film that you're watching i say that but obviously there's some seriously challenged notions um with the fact that i think some of the people's biggest critiques of this film is how un edgar wright this film is Mm, yeah Um, well that's a good thing because i went into this Full well knowing, just based on the premise and the trailer, this is not going to feel like an Edgar Wright film in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So I went in with that almost advantage of not being distracted by that. Yeah. Um, even though I think his style is in there in a much more methodical, subdued way, yeah. but nevertheless, you know, it's not Shaun of the Dead. <laughs> it's no, not, it's, it's not even Baby Driver I in was a lot of ways. Say, yeah, well, I mean, I don't. You don't even have to. Um, because Baby Driver is basically Waititi's Ragnarok. The, okay, yeah. In the sense that their directorial presence is still very heard and very echoed, but it is sort of Americanly standardized, I think. Um, so Waititi doesn't have nearly as much of his um, New Zealand base roots with that film. And, and I think if you watch Baby Driver, it's definitely the American version of, you know, the three, you know, the Shaun of the Dead's, the Hot Fuzzers and the World's Ends. Mm. Um, it, it's still there, like the 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 the, the direct the direction with the the camera and the characters and the, and the kind of the quirkiness to it still echoes, but it definitely is more American and a little bit more serious than the other. Um, you know, his three British his Cornetto trilogy. Yeah, no, um, I agree with that completely. Yeah. So, um, this film is not like those two in the sense it is completely it, it does feel alien his roots and that doesn't necessarily and I say roots I mean alien to the things that have made him synonymous with his direction like it's basically you know with only shrouds very distant echoes of, of those that sort of style and direction are in this film um, which doesn't necessarily mean I think it's wrong to be like oh well that's what makes this film bad because it goes completely against everything he's done before because that would be like saying if Jackson Pollock didn't do you know his abstract style and just went for a pure pure portrait painting style 
or you know and you could make the same critiques of musicians when they've completely changed their genre and direction you know we seem to be way more accepting of of those sort of artistic shifts and and not being open to allowing them to have their be judged in isolation which this film should be judged in isolation that doesn't mean it's a great film or a good film it just means it needs to be judged in isolation yeah well i was a part of my excitement was that it looked so different you know and and just like all of those individual nuggets of what this film was about like all completely appealed to me and Mm. and without it being completely overt this idea of you know almost the dangers of nostalgia and how that weaves into the story in all sorts of different ways like that wasn't overtly um or explicitly said in the trailer but it's definitely the vibe i got and the film delivered in that sense i think a lot of the non-edgar wright isms were actually what i really appreciate because of his ability to try something different tonally we call it the kinetic trilogy and yet some people are well why is that a trilogy how are they the same it's like well tonally they're very very similar and now now that he's doing other films like baby driver which is much more of an action american or an american action lenient film and then this film which is a straight up horror Mm -hmm. and but still goes back to sort of the british humor that slid it in there you can totally see the connection between those three films versus his newer films yeah I think it's to be commended that a director who has been in the industry, and like we said this um, yesterday, it's like he's not been around for only 10 years. He's been around nearly two decades, like prominently around two decades. He's probably been in the film industry before that, you know, probably yeah. 25 well, sh- years. Sean, it's not his first film, but it's it's early. I think it's his sophomore film. So it, it comes back to, um, you know, he's probably been wanting or aspiring to be in the film industry or slowly working the craft for at least nearly three decades just like and that's where you need to sort of have that um scope and sequence because like it's it is interesting that some some directors you know you know later in the month we're going to be talking about wes anderson a little bit more Mm. and how Honestly, from the first film you noticeably can see from Bottle Rocket to now, the he's done medium differentiation, but tonally and directorially, he's kind of kept to the exact same way. And that's not a bad thing because he's just refined and improved the craft over time. Mm. Um, whereas some directors choose to completely deviate because maybe they have nothing more to say in that that genre style or that directorial style and they want to try different things and... And show that they're capable of doing more than just snap comedy. Yeah. Because he's achieved that. That Cornetto trilogy openly shows that he's got the British comedy down packed. Baby Driver shows it can be translated to American or, or a more internationally based audience. Because some people love Baby Driver and aren't big fans of the, the Cornetto trilogy. Mm. Because of its standardization. So it's good. I like that he wants to go off and do... You know this horror film with a twist, this psychological horror with a with a twist. I mean, the first act of this film is is basically you know I'm really it was funny I said it and you were like I said the exact same thing yesterday. It's hmm. it's midnight with midnight in Paris takes a very dark turn basically, <laughs> um, because you know you, you take um Thomas and Mackenzie's character, um, and you know she's basically got the Owen Wilson effect. She's just astounded by the past you know obviously uh, wilson's definitely more astounded with early 20th century uh, stuff and even pushing further back into the late 19th century literature but his fascination with paris and, and that time 
is what takes him back. Through. Yeah, yeah, and even just the idea of like the 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 contemporaries sur- that this protagonist is surrounded by just don't get it. They don't get the obsession or the love for that pastness. I want to quickly jump in and say that Edgar Wright has directed films as far back as 1995, and then a 40 minute film in 1993 called Dead Right, which I would like to take a look at those. Um, so that's over 25 years. Yeah, so he's been around for a while. And he, recorded and- experience too, not even just, and that's the thing. So it's like. It, you know th- this evolution is not overnight it's it's clearly you no know. well it's it's time it is time for him to try and and, and deviate and do something new and that that's what excited me so much about this and um i think you know it's funny because yeah comparing to midnight in paris tonally very very different kinds the fir- of the first i don't think the first i think the first act has some similarities for sure like the first it's the turn like when we move into the second act there's definitely that's where the real tonal shift happens i think yeah um well it's a horror film in in secret for a good while of it which i think is its own kind of horror which i i really appreciate i think yeah i think the first act is fantastic i even made this notice watching it for the first time just the amount of time it takes to um pretty much explain why is our protagonist in this specific location or they're staying here and you know we go for the whole rigmarole of um, you know, why Ellie or Eloise, you know, loves fashion and, and, and sort of has that period of time that she's obsessed with and, you know, doesn't uh, gel with her peers in the dorm room and we just see that sort of life um, just not click at all. And I like how hard it goes, even mm-hmm. just with, like, the swearing and the attitude. Like, it, it really puts you into this um, feeling of, I hate these characters. Um, and you resonate with the protagonist. And I like that it takes all of those steps to show, okay, she hates this aspect of her new life in London. Let's get her somewhere else. We're going to super motivate this idea that instead of her just going straight to that apartment block, you know, where we would find out that that's Sandy's room from the past, instead of just going straight there from London to that room, they motivate this whole section of the first act to show her isolation and then Mm -hmm. her making that choice to get away that, oh, this looks enticing because it's private and quiet and I love yeah. that the film takes the time to really you know, I, I agree. motivate that. I think the first... I said this to you. I, th- I think this is my favourite first act of a, fil- a 2021 film. I mean, not... Obviously, you know, we did get to talk about um, films like Nomadland and, and, and Promising Young Woman at the start of this year, but they are 2020 releases. I think Promising Young Woman's first act was my favourite from the, the 2020 releases, and I think this is... Definitely taken my, my 2021 award. And like I, I said off air, you know, 2019 or 18 was A Star Is Born. I really liked the first act in that film. And this definitely has it. And because like what you said, it it, it motiv- the character has intrinsic and extrinsic motivation, you know. They foreshadow that, oh, her family has had mental health issues, you know. Mm. There's a mother that's not around. She's had episodes inferred by her, her, uh, her nan, um, but still supports the idea. I think the the costume design for that newspaper dress. I wanted to say something oh, yeah. in the cinema. That is the coolest costume design <laughs> I think I've seen in a film for a very long time. I was just blown away by the the what that dress said about the character without saying anything. Yeah, the power of absolutely. costume in this film is is so important. Um. And it's not just a nostalgia trip. It's the the motivation, the showing and not telling that that opening scene has. 
um, yeah. from use of camera and costume and well then blocking with the dancing as well and I got the song that she danced to as a world without love which the entire I've been actually listening to the soundtrack the last day because mm. um, it's just so great but like even just the song choices and very specifically 60s it, t- it tells you who the character yeah. is and um, got that once upon a time in Hollywood-esque uh there, there are some nods. I could have swore, and I tried looking this up. I couldn't find it unless I'm, I just didn't have time to do it. I could have swore there was a song that this film shared with Baby Driver. I'm starting to think it's actually Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that one of the tracks they shared, which makes sense, 60s. And then half of Sandy's costumes, particularly in the later half of the film, yeah. uh, scream Margot Robbie's character yeah. in terms of the costumes. It would have been cool song. if there was like a little like easter egg like a poster of like leo dicaprio's yeah, character yeah, yeah. just in the background they're I know totally because they're such close friends him and tarantino they could you, you gotta who listen. knows there might be something in there you gotta listen to the empire podcast that the two of them did it's like a three-hour podcast where they talk about british films it's excellent i re-listened to part of it before watching this for the for the first time and it was cool hearing them talk about audience reactions and uh, stuff like that which really goes into this film but um i guess i, I reckon there's an easter egg in there. i guess it comes back to genre tone it wouldn't have worked though because like they frame the the male characters in, in once upon a time hollywood as as either like for some reason incredibly charismatic in, in brad britt's character or kind of pathetic whiny actor guy <laughs> if it was dicaprio's <laughs> character um i think if it's subtle enough in the set design somewhere i think that works perfectly fine God, i need to revisit that film um but it's it's definitely um, yeah that, that that first act is incredible because of its motivation and it takes its time and I like that um, that like you said she doesn't just get put in this convenient uh, location to enable all the horror tropic behavior you know it's all motivated from like things like costume like she makes her own dresses and stuff mm-hmm. which are odes to the time that she's obsessed with her motivation for why she's obsessed with the 60s, you know, that was when her mum was who she, you know, obviously has that loss because her mum died at such a young age um, and grew up with this. The music is an ode to her. The motivation of her being a fashion designer, ode to her. It's everything the, the character does, you know, Mackenzie's character does is motivated. And I think her performance is fantastic. Yeah. I think... Um, the both of them between her and Anna Taylor Joy, which we'll get into shortly. Um, I think they're great, but mm. I, I think Mackenzie is the stronger of the two. Interesting, yeah. I mean, she's definitely she's obviously given a lot more to do as a protagonist. She obviously has a lot more to say mm. and a lot more of the emotions to invoke. I mean, obviously Anya Taylor Joy gets a lot to say, but I think part of her characteristics is you know the calm and confident uh, effect of you know walking into you know the club and yeah. just being like I'm the next Silla Black and I mean like it's cool but it it doesn't give her the same range that Thomas and Mackenzie is able to flex in this film uh, I agree with you I think she is such a standout in this film it's a very interesting one right because we're going to probably jump into spoilers very shortly here yeah because some of the things that need unpacking that might detract from this film is. I want to emphasize this film is not a bad film by any stretch, but I said to you immediately as the film finished, I said, this is going to be its strongest contention for awards is definitely going to be in its art direction and, um, you know, the technical side stuff. It's mm-hmm. not going to be in its script. So it's screenplay. And, and honestly, it probably won't get a. would be surprised if it gets a best film nod, 
uh, Oscar season. Really? Okay. I don't see it making a best film nod. Um, there has to be ten. This is the first year. There has. Okay, to Okay. Well, 10. then maybe it might get the uh, the bottom bottom of that ten though. Um, I think it's yeah. going to do really well in things like art and costume design, um, and probably you know um, things like. Uh, uh, cinematography it probably has a good chance in cinematography oh, too. I mean, this is probably off the top of my head. This is probably the best looking film I've seen all year. Yeah, off so, the top of my head. Yeah, but I can't see it screenplay getting an odd, and I can't see. And I'm going to elaborate why. Um, but do you I mean, have anything else it, you would like to add before going into more? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I'll just quickly say to that point. I mean, the only reason it doesn't make best picture, if it doesn't, is because of its genre purely. Um, although I too also have issues with the script, but I think now's as good time as any to jump right into spoilers. So please, I recommend you watch this film for what it is, and then come back, listen to our voices. <laughs> so an interesting thing, right? To jump into the genre discussion straight off the bat before yep. we move more into plot specific stuff is it's just like you said, it's build. It's definitely a psychological horror, right? That's probably the most conventionally genre grouping you could give it right that's yeah. probably I, I think it's straight up a psychological horror sure and nothing more or less because obviously i think it blends because we we just alluded to it in the non-spoiler part there's clearly history of family mental illness in this family mm. i.e her mother committed we, we find out very early on in that first act that her mother committed suicide um at a young age and it's alluded that Mackenzie's character um, has similar issues, um, like mental health issues, always had them in the past, like episodes. Right. Well, um, the, the the very clear one is the sense of schizophrenia and that she sees her mum. And part of the conversation she has with, I guess that's her nan yeah. um, that she's talking to, is about you know when the last time is that you saw her and, and going out to the big city on your own could re-trigger events mm-hmm. in you. That sort of discussion they have early on, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Eloise clearly like has that stuff, and it's a really interesting mix because it's inferred. It's what I find interesting is is the events that occur to her supernatural or mental, mm. and I think the incoherence of that is what people struggle with the most in this film when it comes to a critique. Because is what is happening to her, as, and it, it's interesting because I'm going to bring up an Anna Taylor Joy. You know, we got to talk about Queen's Gambit when you're talking about oh, mental yeah, health and, and about. in terms of um, sort of the hallucinogen side because that's a big part of that show. It's an emphasis. You know, Netflix original came out earlier this year, um, in which prescription drugs are what lead to predominantly the hallucinogens, but also allow and clearly there are mental health issues in. Taylor Joy's character in that show. Um, so I come back to is what is happening to Eloise over the course of this film schizophrenic or is it supernatural? And I think that that's one of the biggest, we never get a clear answer to that. And I think that that might hinder the script side of the film. Yeah, it's funny because like when I think of script issues I have with it, they're very like specific. Oh, I think this character you could have done more with here, or or this or that. But in terms of the supernatural element of it, or you know, the answer to that specific question is this 
purely schizophrenia or real. There's obviously a sense of uh, some of it's real in here because of the way it affects other characters involved. My takeaway, and I I don't know if it's a good thing or not that they kind of leave it vague. My takeaway would be that um, obviously her mum is like a sign of the schizophrenia. It's very notable that a lot of these... Um, sequences that she's having their dream sequences and they could be very vivid very real dream sequences i think maybe is a commentary and sort of this generational aspect of like women trying to be strong together in a world where they're just you know abused and used and all of these elements we'll get into soon but in terms of the the ghost of the men that um that sandy's gone on to kill and yeah we're way into spoilers now i think they're real and i think part of that is because we only ever see them in the outside of the dream world where they sort of haunt and affect her, you know, in the library or on the streets or all of those elements. So I think there was a combination of all of those, but it's, it's definitely up for interpretation. Mm. I think it's made in latter. The only, the only time we ever get like a really clear, the closest thing we get to a clear answer is, um, basically comes from, uh, a, a final scene, mm-hmm. an interaction with, with Sandy um, or Alice, Alessandra um, in, you know, as, as an old lady, and yeah, this is well into spoilers, talking to, to Eloise, um, basically confessing to everything. But she goes, I don't know how you're seeing this or how you knew this information because mm-hmm. there's no clear answer, which makes me think that there's a mixture of... of because what I think Wright's trying to infer with his writing is the schizophrenia allows her to see the supernatural. Um, it's sort of like, because of this schizophrenic um, situation, she is able to see things that no one else can see. And that definitely becomes apparent when things like, you know, when she's in the library and she's about to stab, uh, what's her name, Jocasta? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, um. Yeah, Jocasta. Because, because yeah. she believes that that's one of those. So that makes it think like she's the only one. That proves that she's the only one seeing this stuff. And we believe, and that's where the incoherentness of, is that a schizophrenic projection or is that a supernatural projection? And I think what Wright's inferring is it's a mix of the two. It's amalgamated. Yeah. It's, one leads to the other, which I can see why people would be frustrated with that from a writing point of view. Because... That's sort of like underplaying the mental... This is the problem, and, you know, as someone who has tried to write about schizophrenia, Mm. comes back to when you actually tackle a proper mental health issue and you try and put it in a fictionalised framework, people tend to, at least in more contemporary settings, don't react to that very well. Yeah, I think it's interesting because it's almost portraying that, like... It's funny because I was about to say it, and I remember this is a line in the film when her own, you know, Nan says like it's your superpower, and I think yeah, there's a there's a tight rope to walk there when you're going to start depicting things like schizophrenia as a superpower. But what I mean is like this is someone you know, it, it, it's almost uh, it's I mean it's a curse to have the ghost if that if that's their communicative mm. method is to sort of wiggle their way into this um, you know schizophrenic mindset. And I think it's very similar to this observation I made between this and Baby Driver, which I said earlier, I think tonally, they're obviously very different films, but I think there's quite a few interesting comparisons there. One is that you have a protagonist who has some sort of um, disability or something that they're using 
as a superpower in the in the sense of um, baby and baby driver. He's like you know hard of hearing That's affects it. the way he drives, for example, and it's actually like um, it's part of his superpower there. And I think it all comes back to a lack of consequences. In the same that you have Deborah in Baby Driver, who you know they meet immediately fall in love, and she's a ride or die chick, and that she never like switches off. And in this film, you kind of have a similar character in John, which we'll talk about. I think there's a problem with John. We both do. Yeah. Yeah, but huge problem. But I think that all plays into Edgar Wright's writing, and we should clarify that he's not the only one. He co-wrote this. Let me just quickly with Kristen Wilson uh, Carnes. I don't have my glasses on, so that's what I'm reading there. But um, I'll just puff my mouse over it so you can take a look, Zeke. <laughs> uh, I think that's Kirsty Wilson Carnes. Oh, okay, thank you. Yeah, I you know what? No, my glasses are in the other room. That's very frustrating. But um, so we should clarify that he does have a co-writer here to help with the script. But nevertheless, I think they're very comparable instances of a lack of consequences. And I think I'm not saying there needs to be consequences, but yeah, it's almost like a sleight of hand pass off of her having schizophrenia. To be fair, they don't. I don't think they use that word. Um, which makes it slightly more... I do believe at one point... There, no, okay. there, there are two points, I believe. They do? Okay. I think in the police interview, there's an oh, inference. Okay. Yep. And yep, yep. Jocasta says it, but obviously doesn't say it with any sort of mental backing. But the grounding is in the one with the police interview because that's a question legitimately. They ask if there's been any issues of mental health. And I believe... Um, and obviously, I've only seen the film once, but um, Eloise says her mum was schizophrenic. No, she's. I think she just says no to every right. okay. question. But it, yeah, what, does your family have a history of, of depression or schizophrenia? Yeah, yeah, so there is... They do use the word. Um, I, this is such a cheap reply. I'll still say it anyways. That they're just accusations. They're not like a diagnosis. But yeah. I don't think that's a good enough defense. I do see your point in that they do... Use I think, that word. And I'm about to praise the Babadook for this, right? Okay. And huh, yeah, the, uh, <laughs> Zeke praising the Babadook. No, no, because, you know, we obviously had an introspective and I, I still don't love the film, but there are definitely positives. The grief side of mm. the Babadook and the way they handle depression and grief and the stages of grief is far more intellectually handled than it is in this film with the with this mental health condition, I think. Because it's very clear the rules of the su- the supernatural meets the mental health in the Babadook. Mm. Um, especially when we were discussing that last scene with when it still exists. It's just down in the basement. You know, yeah. it, and well, this, think, this film actually has a very similar ending in a way. True. Yeah. Um, I just think it's handled with a little bit more grace and and then that's mm. that's a big praise to kent's writing and direction in that because i think it's handled with a bit more grace and um and i i think it's tricky because it's like mental health that's why mental health or mental particularly cognitive disorders are such a tricky thing to handle without um in in particularly things like the horror genre i think because you have you have to met like met like mesh the mental health with the actual physical psychological and mm. and, and and scientific backing and it can be a very t- a fine line to walk if it's like like lines like referring to it as a superpower right um and directors over decades have either done really well with this or done appallingly with this and i don't think this is uh, really bad but i can see because of the ambiguity or the or the lack of explanation or or, or backing 
um, it can be frustrating, I think, at times. And disconnect some audiences because they don't really know if what they're watching is a psychological episode or some form of supernatural. And I think it's it's a fair amalgamation of the two. But, like, we take that last, you know, not to jump back and forth too much on this plot, but if we take that last scene in which Sandy as an old lady sees all of those men, like, with her own eyes and actually mm. physically interacts with it, what that's saying is, although she might have had some form of psychological break, and we're not saying that she's definitely detracted from any sort of mental health issues herself, that, to me, infers supernatural and that's where it gets kind of where where's the where's the line is this super is this supernatural or is this purely in the head of um of eloise's character yeah because i know in that last scene you're referring specifically to the the ghost of of matt smith physically slapping what a hell of a performance though two pt dubs like fantastic go matt smith <laughs> i haven't even watched doctor who he's good in the period pieces he was in the crown as well which i haven't seen but okay he's got he's got the face for it I guess Anya does too, but um, what's interesting because yeah, that that's your takeaway is that she sees the ghost because she gets physically slapped by it. Yeah, and it's like if you take that out, then there is no other person who sees the ghost. Now, I think either way, I think the film is so successful at creating this sense of entrapment in the horror. Sure, uh, and, and not so much the second time, of course, because I know how it all plays out. But the first time, I just felt like God, there is. There is no escape from this, especially when she's getting chased down the hallways with these ghosts and and all of this keeps happening. I think making you feel isolated in the first act from just people like chastising your that like your the things you like and, and forcing you to basically leave and want to live on your own in a different apartment. Like you have that surface level of isolation, then you have the isolation of the horror, something that you can't um, tell. And that's why my least favorite scene is the prison scene and some of the elements around that because it almost feels too like, scripty at that point. Like, plotty. oh, yeah, it feels too plotty. Like, oh, she goes to the police station and they call her crazy. I was like, I didn't... I already understood and felt the uh, and horror in this to film. To add to that plotty, that's the only thing that gives the reveal. Like, that's what incentivizes the reveal. I feel like there's a very easy way to write around that, though. 100%. Very um, easy. It's in... It's All the pieces are already there. The fact that she's physically drawn Anna Taylor-Joy, and that just so happens to be... All she needs is to get a hold of those sort of designs. Yeah. And spend a little bit... They need to spend more to... So Sandy of the present, the old lady Sandy, which probably is the best way of just calling yeah, it. Like Miss, Collins, I mean, Miss Collins. Miss Collins. They call her Miss Collins. Um, they need to spend more one-on-one time together. Like, mm-hmm. there needs to be more scenes. And they don't have those scenes in there. Because there needs to be that, like, slow build of relationships so they can get close enough so the, the the information gets revealed without going to the police station. Um, and it, the fact that she physically draws, you know, Miss Collins or Sandy back in the yeah, 60s. Yeah, there's drawings there she, when she changes the hair. And there's already plenty of clues in there in, in regards to, like, the danger of the place. Even, like, she talks about the smell rising up in the apartment or, like, the observation I made early on was the phone is only an emergency call. It's like, that's not... Like a that's not a hint towards the horror that Thomas and Mackenzie's going to go through. That's a hint that the guy she used to entrap in there can't call for help. Yeah. In that scenario, and like little hints like that are spread all over. But I also think you're right in the sense that even if they didn't add any more scenes with the two of them, if they just cut the prison scene, yeah, motivate the scene when she you know she runs out of class, she's running down the street, and the ghosts are all there. 
I totally buy the fact that the next move she would make is to go to the library. That's still a very plotty, like, oh, now it's a detective story. She has to figure this out. Like, I think the schizophrenic, like, horror of what's surrounding her is more than enough mm. to carry me for the rest of the story. Um, but to your point, she's already changed the hair and she comments on it. She's done the drawings. Like, there were enough clues that Miss Colin would, uh, like, she knows. Yeah. She knows that this girl is seeing this and, and picking up she's, on something. She's wearing 60s clothing. She's yeah. looking like literally a ghost of Miss Collins' past of herself. Mm. And it, it it's such an interesting um, thing to, yeah, have those deferrals to the police station. It doesn't really matter. And um, Even just at that point, all scenes. it is is compounding how ostracized Eloise feels. Yeah, well, it's regurgitating the same information. Because it's the poli- the male police officer in the, the bloke's bathroom being like, oh, crazy girl. And like, mm. you're like, okay, we get it. Like, she feels ostracized. If it wasn't for John, John Boy, who's just, <laughs> for some reason, overly forgiving of Eloise's behavior, which... Well, I think... look, like, We have to talk about John. Well, quickly, within that police yeah. scene, the thing that also really bugs me is the amount of times they keep cutting away to, like, previous shots as she's explaining. It's like, we, we picked this... At least I did. Mm. You know, when she changes her hair, you know, the connection between Terrence Stamp and Jack and whether they were the same person. Or like, all of those things that she regurgitates that the camera, like, cuts back between as if it's a big reveal. Mm. Didn't need any of that. There's no new information in there. Well, and the fact of the matter is, like... Stamp's character probably should have died by Colin's hands. Like that like mm. the fact that Stamp dies in in such a a like I find you, it weird that he died period. Well, cuz look, more can and look, maybe you're just trying to like they're just trying to subvert a bit more of the the horror tropes, but the old police officer investigating, it's like to die at the hands of I get I know it's set up the amount of times that um Eloise almost gets run over by a car and, and Stamp's always like, watch out, watch out for those cars, watch yeah. out for those cars. And then yeah. get that's, it. Yeah, that's rule of, there's a rule of three there. I think it does happen twice and then he bites the bullet on the third time. But it's it's the fact of the matter is he his comments prior to getting hit by the car is it was a cold case. He was investigating all these disappearances mm. and couldn't find... That's why he says, oh, well, like... Sandy was killed by Alex. Yeah, like, and when you find Alex, like, in whatever hellhole she's in, like, he's given up on that investigation, so to speak. Yeah, because he couldn't work it out. I I think it's sim- as simple as his role's done in the story, oh, he gets hit by a car. Yeah. Like, I, I think it doesn't go beyond that thematically, which, yeah. whatever, it's fine. Well, his character has more place in that finale than John does. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's funny because my observation after the first screening was, man, I wish John had some sort of turn where instead of just being a complete support mechanism, much like Deborah is in, in Baby Driver, that he does have a turn where even he's too far gone to see or, or thinks that she's too far gone to recover. And you just straight through cut through that and being like, why does he even need to be in the film no. at all? Which, well, uh, I, it's hard to argue on that, to be honest. And, and my notion comes from the fact that, it, one, I actually, to build on your point, do not understand how he keeps giving Eloise outs. For her behavior, because at the end of the day, what we've learnt from what would have an answer, but I won't say it out loud. Um, well, I know you're talking about um, was it Blake's comment? Oh, it's Blake's review, but, um, but on a larger which, scale, it's Thomason McKenzie, and he yeah. likes Thomason McKenzie. Oh, well, who doesn't? <laughs> um, 
it's uh it's the the, the it's his Florence Pugh. Um so it's it no honestly she, she cut her hair recently, Zeke. Did you see that? What Florence Pugh? Yeah. Um no I did not. She, she looks really beautiful. Um the love of my life. I'm sure Scrubs will appreciate that. Um <laughs> Go Sack Braff. <laughs> Your death in Bojack won't be forgotten. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, honestly, it's, it, it comes back to, like, why, like, his existence does come to build on your point. Why does he constantly bail her out? Because she, because from what we gather, everyone around her age in the contemporary world she's in completely ostracizes her immediately. Hmm. Um, and we make a, I think it's a really important emphasis because I do think one of the themes of this is obviously generational trauma due to, you know, toxic male culture. And I think that that is a really strong point that this film consistently brings up. Um, Stamp's character is, is kind of creepy. It's never like suit, but it's, he's very much a product of the time in which all of this heinous acts is happening to Sandy that we're seeing through the eyes of, 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 um, Eloise. So the, you know, and then obviously you got like the police male characters immediately come kind of throw her under the same sort of bus. So there's that recurring theme. And honestly, like I said to you, the only support network Ellie needs is from like, you know, she gets it from her nan constantly, which is mm-hmm. fine. Someone who weathered that time and supports her. I mean, Miss Collins does actually support her, um, up yeah. until the finale, like when she catches John in there, she doesn't acute, doesn't get really aggressive. Basically, kind of forgives her immediately, and actually yeah. chases John out of the house and for, and immediately yeah. asks, "Did he do anything to you?" Yeah. So it's, well, she's obviously that that empathy side. She understands what's happening. Yeah. And even that that little clue of like, if I caught him, I would kill him. Yeah. Now we know you definitely would. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and so it's weird that you know this this. Obviously, this you know Stamps character is kind of the only exception to the rule you really need because he lived in that time and basically said to Sandy, as we saw, "You're too good for this life. You should get out of this while you're ahead." You know, he's and he, you know he clearly doesn't. He's not making the same advances as what we've seen from all of those ghosts and the men that killed. Mm. Um, so it's a different world, and I think it comes back to that's kind of all you need. So John's character of constantly forgiving. It's like I guess. The only thing that I could say to you when I said to you in the car is it's trying to show, I guess, the progressivism of of men in 60 years, maybe. There's, like, there's one guy left. Like, yeah, But yeah, then yeah. that completely goes against what happens earlier in the film when she goes out with Jocasta and the girls and the first guy that we hear speak that's of their age just uh, says the most repulsive pickup line. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, and then, you know, obviously it's, yeah, it's about the uncomfortability. I think when and, I, when I think of the several roles that John as a character could have played in this story, none of them really fit what ended up happening, which is whether he is what he is in terms of like a forgiving, caring guy wanting to look after her, but we're constantly on edge of like, where's well, he going to turn, you know, or you do the Bo Burnham in Promising Young Woman approach where there is sort of a shocking churn. You're like, oh, this is the one. of the nice guy. Yeah, yeah well, exactly. Or, or a complete mirror of Matt Smith, which visually is what the film's trying to say. Like, the, if you look at the posters, he's definitely the Matt Smith equivalent of, like, the blue modern world as opposed to the neon mm. red past. But I didn't feel that watching this film. He didn't feel like a mirror of Matt no, Smith. No, he felt like a white knight. 
Like the funny he was thing just is, there. Matt Smith is Matt Smith's character is just the condensed version of Bo Burnham's character. He's condensed to a far smaller. Like his turn happens way earlier. Right. But if you think about it, it's the exact same trajectory Bo Burnham's character goes on in Promising Young Woman. It just doesn't take an hour, an hour and twenty minutes to get there. It takes like twenty. Right. <laughs> like yeah, yeah. it's it's and that's fine because it's still there. The nice guy gets completely destroyed and the archetype gets completely ruined. I mean, Promising Young Woman handles this, I think, this subject matter so much better. Like, I just think it does. Mm. Um, uh, I think it's, obviously, it's a different kind of, that's a psychological thriller rather than a horror. Yeah, I think um, this film's definitely, yeah, compared to Promising Young Woman, and, and the one I compare to more is Never Really, Sometimes, Always, because both this film and that film, go for more over. they go for it in terms of every male character bar, like, one and I think it never really, sometimes, always, there literally is no nice men character. They're all misogynistic pigs. And I was saying to you, I think it works better in this film because it's a very constructed, stylistic Edgar Wright world where they can lean into, um, uh, what's the word, caricatures. And the fact that we hate, you know, what what's her name? I keep getting it. Jocasta as much as we, well, maybe not as much, but like, you know, we're introduced to those characters and like, they suck. We hate these characters. Yeah, he definitely creates more... Like, he creates caricatures. That is yeah. a consistent thing that is present in this film. Just because everything else feels like Alien, I think I agree with you. It's it, They're still caricatures. John's character is just null and void, though. He makes no real impact. Like, he has no real... He has no place in the finale, apart from raising the stakes, I guess, a little bit. But fact of the matter is, we're attached to Eloise. We mm-hmm. like Eloise as a character. There is at no point in time we never feel like Eloise is being too much or not realistic. Um, she's a strong protagonist. Mm-hmm. Like, she is. So he doesn't need to be there. It would... It's... Bo Burnham serves a purpose in Promising Young Woman. For, you know... Like, like he does... His character um, is there to enable Kerry Mulligan. Mm. Like, and motivate. It's It's... They're all there, you know... Like, the film is better because Bo Burnham's in that film because it just motivates what Mulligan's doing more as a protagonist from an intrinsic and extrinsic point of view. John's character has no purpose. He has no gravitas. Yeah, I'm literally trying to think of... Like, even their their chemistry, it's not that they have bad chemistry. I just don't... I think, I think Eloise is so on edge for the majority of that relationship. Even, like, nice gestures when he writes sorry on the coke mm. can. Like, that's, that's nice, it's clever. But you're right, I think thematically, it doesn't really... S- I don't know what it says, I don't know what it serves. Plot-wise, I can't, off the top of my head, I can't... And I've seen it twice. I can't figure off the top of my head, what does he do that changes the plot in any way, shape, or form, except kind of save her at the end, kind of? But she still saves herself at Eloise the end. Eloise has more chemistry with Sandy's reflection. <laughs> <laughs> well, she would have to, and that's actually kind of a good segue to talk about they work together as sort of these mirroring images. Now, I was surprised watching the film. My takeaway, and see, this is what I love about the vagueness of the first trailer, is this was still a surprise to me. The fact that she's not embodying Anya Taylor-Joy's character. It's pretty Mm. early on, you're like, okay, she's an observer. She's, like, participating kind of with the dance, but otherwise, she's in the crowd watching her sing. She's, like, Mm. you know, behind the mirror watching her Work as essentially a, a sex... This, yeah. Yeah. This is a good worker. segue into one of my... I think this is going to turn into a critique. And this is why. Okay. I'll know. Because <laughs> um, I love that first scene. And I think... But I think that first scene is a little ambiguous on... 
is she an observer or is she embodying? And I'm gonna, and this is why because that first sequence uses mirrors quite a bit, in which mm. they mirror each other in the way they're acting, and it feels like basically what it is 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 is, is Mackenzie's getting you know, Ellie is embodying Sandy in the way that the way when Sandy looks through the mirror, sees Ellie, basically. Mm. So it's one of those Freaky Friday-esque kind of body morphing things where it's like the rest of the world around her sees Sandy. Mm. But it's it's actually um, Mackenzie's, you know, it's it's Eloise's brain and Eloise kind of acting or almost... Maybe it's, uh, it's probably more accurate to being like a dreamlike state. Like if I had a dream and I was you doing something... But I'm not. I'm in your brain. There's but still somewhat of an outer body. Yeah, you're doing all the that, work. Yeah. I'm just living in your head, basically. Um, yeah, it's interesting because I, I was sort of I'm not disappointed, but I was thrown off by the oh, she's not a an actual reflection or like she's a lagging behind, um, Sandy in some cases, and then they join the, in with the dance. For that first sequence, though, they're almost in sync. It's only yeah. as the as the nights go on, they become more disconnected, and almost. Mm. Um, and maybe that's that's a deliberate choice, but the big things were like in that first bit when she you know hooks up with Matt Smith and he gives her a hickey, and the yeah. hickey transforms into the real world. But that's the only time we ever see a physical transformation right. to the real world. And when Nancy takes Freddie's hat out of the dream, that kind of yeah comparison, yeah. And that's but that's exactly what it is. Yeah. And it's like, but that's the only time we do it. But it's like consistent in Nightmare on Elm Street. There's that. At least there's a, there's a little bit more of that crossover. Yeah, like when you know when she punches the mirror, for example, out of frustration. She, it's not like uh, Ellie cuts her hand in the in the present day. We're like that's the only you're right, the only example we see. Which of is it. that's where it gets weird. It's like is this supernatural or is this mental, like cognitive? Because it's like, and it's so, and that's where that inconsistency starts to come in. Because how did she get the hickey from Matt Smith? Did she was she in bed and like squeezed her neck to the point where she creates a hickey? Like it's an interesting dream, Zeke. Yeah, lots of, lots of effects. Um, <laughs> and that's when it's like okay, but then that's pure embodying at that point, really. If you're experiencing this, it's a spiritual, physical embodiment happening there. But then obviously, when things like the murdering, like when she's getting stabbed, she's only witnessing the murder. She's not physically experiencing the pain. Yeah, yeah. Of of what's going through Sandy. Like that when she's, you know, with, um, so it's interesting that it, it, it does have, I think that level of inconsistency there and, or, and I, I don't know if that's deliberate because obviously, yeah, after like the second or third date, she becomes almost just pure observed. She's in the mirrors observing this horrific heinous acts play out. And every time she tries to escape, she just jumps to another memory. You know, she can't get out. So then it becomes almost, yeah, like like you said, Nightmare on Elm Street S is this dream she can't get out of, basically, or yeah, Inception. Yeah, that, that slowly even takes over the, the rest of her um, sort of existence in a way. I think, yeah, because like I said, I was thrown off because the, the, the trailer didn't implement, in, indicate that, is it was an actual, um, like, a body takeover situation. Would be cool if it was pure body, I think. Yeah. If they'd kept to that level. And like, that dance sequence openly shows embodiment. Yeah, I think I think you're right in the sense that we do see over time a separation of them, and I think that's intentional. And we see hints where the, the world sort of start to clear, where we see Stan, Sandy's actually starting to notice Eloise in the mirror. And I know this is in my second view. There's Matt actually calls her Ellie at one point, like during the meeting, the first meeting with the guy that she's going to end up having to sleep with. 
um, the number of times they actually mix up the changes, the fact that the girl sitting in the chair changes. Like, you, you can watch her face and like, oh, shit, no, that's Thomas and McKenzie in that shot. And then the next shot, reverse shot, it's Anya again. Like, that scene in particular has a lot of back and forth and back and forth. I just wish they would have committed to one, not passenger. Yeah, I completely um, think that's fair. Like, either complete passenger or complete envelopment. And I like that. I loved those shots where it was like, oh, hang on, that was Thomas and McKenzie. Oh, no, that was Anastasia. I yeah. liked that. Because that, to me, just that reinforces this is embodiment. Yeah. You are both the same person, both like in the past and the present. And it's like, that's what would really send home the generational trauma mm. theme. But the fact of the matter is, in the latter stages, after the first or the second night, it becomes complete passenger observations. Like, like I said, that witnessing of the stabbing mm. is just her seeing it, not feeling it. And she should be feeling that. Maybe not physically getting stabbed, but yeah. feeling the pain that was undergone. Well, the the only... I just thought of this now. My only thing is... There's an element of wishing you were in that situation where that, that first dream is so luscious and she's so excited to be there. And, and that's what I love about... Oh, well, I'll, I'll go into that in a minute, actually. But this idea that during these you know awesome times where she, she's dancing and it's like really you know sexy and exciting and thrilling... She is a part of that. Sure. But she still has the ability to remove herself from the moments that are darker and twisted, which I don't think that's a... It would be a much darker film, but if they just tweaked it so that she was still embodying her even during the later halves of the film, then mm. I, I would think say, it would be would more effective. I would say be effective. brave, be bold, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Go, if you're going horror, you go all out at this point. If you want to talk about subject matter this heavy, I think... I think it needs to be attacked with that level of, of, of um, boldness. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, you know, not to toot Kent's horn too much, but, you know, she doesn't shy away from mm. that stuff. She's willing to tackle that stuff on head on. And I think that boldness, or even, you know, we were talking about Ariasta last week, didn't shy away from any heinous or horror stuff there. So it's like, um, I think it, it's would be nice that if you're going to go the horror route and talk about such heavy subject matter and talk about this haunting generational trauma, don't pull the punches, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. I think visually I still think it, it sort of takes the right steps because I know people, some people complain about, yeah, the, 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 the heaviness of the thematic elements against, you know, the neon lit um, beautiful streets of, you know, wet London and going between dreams and not. Like that, that visual aesthetic is a lot more pleasing um, than, you know, other conventional horrors would be. I think that's fine because I think part of this journey, this narrative is the trickery of mm-hmm. nostalgia, the idea that she finds this escapism, you know, by going to bed and waking up in 1960s beautiful London that she purposely keeps private because you have Josh ask, like, oh, what do you have plans tonight? And then she sort of smiles to herself like, I do, in fact, and it's to go to bed and wake up in this dreamland. And as that turns into a nightmare, I love the idea of that still being this privatized thing that she can't vocalize or, or explain to people. Um, so I love that twist. I love that turn and how this film plays with that. But the more I think about it, you're right. I think there are some missed opportunities in terms of why wasn't she embodying Anya Taylor-Joy through every moment, even mm. the more horrible moments. Because that could have been even more like hard to watch. But I think it would have been a nice... Potent. Yeah, it could have been a potent statement that I think it still makes in a way, like the 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 seedy underbelly of things that we admire and wish. And I think we talked about this pretty recently, well, off the show, before we even started today. We just talked about, you know, the set of Rust and 
what it means for just Hollywood productions and how everyone is overworked and stressed and tired and mm-hmm. these horrible things are happening to people that are just not getting basic human needs every day yeah. working on movies and it's like it's not as glamorous as as it seems and I think people are really only starting to see that which is I think that sucks and there needs to be changed and I think this has that commentary on that while still being a very British focused film about fame in London specifically although I know um, you pointed out there's definitely some ties to Hollywood as well in terms of the seedy underbelly of sure. fame and fortune. Yeah. I love that aspect of it, but I, I agree with you. I think it could have been a lot more powerful if it was a full um, immersion. immersion embodying that character as opposed to just being a, a observant looker. Mm. Well, suppose. that would have been a pure mirror at that point. Yeah, well, exactly. And I frankly thought that's what this was going to be going in. Which is interesting. Cool. Do you have anything else you'd like to add, Jake? Um, let's see. Um, I, I forgot to mention this in terms of the um, foreshadowing and callbacks and stuff, but I just want to point out, I love the cleverness of her saying in the past that she's the next Scylla Black, and then they play Scylla Black at the end during that final confrontation. I, it's, I think that's what they play at the end, but she definitely has a vinyl of it in her room mm-hmm. when we finally enter it at the end. I just like that little nod. Yeah, I think that's a very good... Uh, Full, full hats up to the product and production and costume design. Mm. They were the things that I honestly think just stood out. Yeah. And setting it in London, very clever with the fact that London especially hasn't, you know, it's funny we talked about a little bit about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood at the start of this mm. uh, review and how that was an ode to the 60s and a love letter really particularly to that age. A bit more where, positive take on whereas the 60s. Whereas this is probably <laughs> way more of a, a cynical take, but it really showcased, like they, they say how quick um, London moves, but at the same time, how kind of timeless it is with yeah. the use of the the taxis not changing their 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 appearance and all. Yeah, like, the, well, was... yeah, it's the taxi driver who says, like, "Oh, it's still the same old London underneath." Yeah, which is a nice little foreshadowing comment, actually. Yeah. No dramas, plenty of that there. So, Jake, mm. what would you highlight? Say? Um, I struggle with this one, but I feel like I know what yours is going to be, and I'm actually very confident saying mine has to be. The scene when John actually comes over and they're, you know, about to have us. I love making sessions, Zeke, after the Halloween party. And that whole sequence that plays out where she sees the supposed death of Sandy with the knife going in and all the tension building up with Miss Collins banging on the door and, and John hits the glass and stuff. But the reason I like that scene, hmm. not Goes just because... John McClane. John McClane, yeah, exactly. Walking for glass. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's a good one. They never brought that up. They never had him like take his shoes off and he's got blood everywhere. No. That would be funny. I would, I would like that. That was the other thing. The day after, he was totally chill. So Yeah, even getting stabbed in the end, he was fine. Hobbling. Yeah. That's John, interesting. John's anyway, but, yeah. but what, what I love about that scene... Yeah, poor John. Poor guy. Um, he just, he just, he's he a John just, Doe. You just don't even love. remember he's there. Yeah. <laughs> what I love about that scene so much, um, not necessarily just the tension building, but there's a very specific distraction in there that alludes to obviously the ending when you find it Sandy's not the one who got stabbed but it was actually Matt Smith's character who got stabbed um, or Jack if you will because they very purposely first off I remember like it's because there's so much going on in the scene I remember when it slows down and she breaks in the room and asks her you're right I sort of had the moment of like I had to catch up in my brain mentally like crap they, they, like between all of what they just showed in there was Sandy's death Crap, like I remember it being a bit jarring and like, oh, I have to catch my breath. That just happened. But the way they demonstrate the knife actually going back and forth and this cool trick where it we stay on the stagnant shot as the knife comes in and out of frame constantly, which a little psycho-esque, whichever it was cool, but you also get 
Thomas and Mackenzie's eyes, like the shocked look on her face as the knife comes back and forth. And I was like, that's a really cool way of, of showing that without being too violent before realizing, oh, that's the trick. We don't know who's getting stabbed in that scene. Mm. So it's they sort of draw attention to it in a way that, oh, that's a cool shot, but it's going to be important for later. And then, of course, later, they do show the deaths in much more gruesome fashion. <laughs> oh, the night, mm-hmm. the knife's going through necks and everything. Oh. But I wanted to give a shout-out to that scene because that was a very clever plant in there, visually, yeah. that I wasn't expecting. Zeke, what was your highlight scene? Oh, it's got to be got to be the um, the full uh, opening to the Dreamland-esque. Mm. Um, that whole sequence, particularly the dance scene, is it's got to be the one that you just have to, you know... It basically plays out exactly how your nostalgia sort of uh, love would play out for mm. an affirmation for this time. But the cinematography in the scene as they switch between Joy and, and, and Mackenzie was just... Just blows your mind. Yeah. I was my jaw was like down here in that first act because I was like, "Wow, this is just fantastic." Mm-hmm. That sequence from from the moment the the camera spools away and the bed goes for seemingly ages um, as she's under the covers and the red and the blue lights are in, and then moving into the alleyway and and then the the transition between the the reflection just fantastic yeah no it's it's mind-blowing and before i forget i want to give a shout we've talked about tarantino a lot in this but i want to go back even further and shout out pop fiction and how very similar dance moves (laughs) going on in there so good which i love which is funny because in the in the concept or or in the the context of pop fiction is it's a present day that it takes place in but they're in what the 50s diner um or in sort of the old timey diner where they do that competition and dance so I just like the constant referentials to that how, time period. How chuffed do you think Anna Taylor-Joy and Matt Smith were that they will forever in, in cinema history have the same dance <laughs> as the one in Pulp Fiction? Uh, I'm sure they love it. I'm yeah. sure they love it. It's the BBC One video they've done together where they talk a bit about the dance, and it's very good. There you go. It's very good. Well, Last Night of Soho is currently playing at Luna's near you as part of the British International Film Festival. Mm. Uh, Jake, when's the actual full cinematic release? It for is that, the then? 18th is when it goes wide. Oh, my birthday. So you've got a bit of time. Yeah, very exciting. Big 2-4. Well, I can tell you, Zeke, what comes out in uh, cinemas and streaming in the next week. I would love to hear that. You would love to hear it? I would love to hear that. Oh, very good. Not because it's a segment on our show. Just is it? Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, it's 147 weeks. You, you sort of forget what the segments are. This segment didn't used to exist, though. No, I think from day one, it's been was around. It? What yeah. was the new... Yeah, I feel like there is a segment didn't use. I guess the start, yeah, the trivia and stuff, that came in. We did things like trivia ran... Oh, the, the trivia is new. The post is new. We obviously did the film quote of that year from, like, episode, like, 82 through to 100 and, I guess, 21 would be the true. last one. That's true. So, we've, we've taken segments in and out, which has been fun, but cool. I think this one's always been around. Coming to Netflix this week, you have both Passing and Red Notice, which are both currently in cinemas, but they get their Netflix drop very soon. Ooh, uh, baby. And speaking of which, there is a film coming to cinemas uh, this week that will be in Netflix in the following week, but I'll, I'll get to that when I'm ready, Zeke. Just, just hold your horses. Uh, coming to stand this week is the Shawshank Redemption. You got Khan, uh, Khan, Jesus, Kong, Skull Island. Oh, that's where it is. It's Skull and Kong. That's where I got mixed up. Uh, the, 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 Jesus, my goodness, the Homesmen. I was gonna say the Huntsmen or the something, the Homesmen, uh, which stars Tommy Lee Jones of all people. 
And, of course, the documentaries Finding Jack Charlton and L.A. Burning the Rides 25 Years Later, which that one in particular covers the lives of the people at and the aftermath of the flashpoint of the L.A. riots, which I guess was about 25 years ago. Um, so that's coming to Stan. Uh, Disney Plus have their big Disney Plus day, apparently, on Friday the 12th. So that consists of Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, Home Sweet Home Alone, starring Archie Yates from you know Jojo Rabbit fame, and Jungle Cruise, which is Emily Blunt and The Rock, of course. I think those all drop as part of the subscription on Friday. Uh, and if you have Paramount+, Plus, which neither of us have, but if you're interested, the live-action film or feature film for Clifford the Big Red Dog uh, drops later this week. So it's very exciting. Uh, coming to cinemas this week, we have the 25th Bond film, No Time to Die, and the last one to star Daniel Craig. Zeke, are you excited for this at all? Uh, I've got a lot of friends that are excited for it. They wanted oh, okay. to go to Gold Class and watch it. Um, wow. I've never been to okay. Gold Class. Um, oh, it's good. Might go. But, um, look, to be honest, it, the this has been, what, nearly two years? It's been oh, it's been come. ages, yeah. So, um, I was very lukewarm on, on Spectre, um, but, you know, I, I think I'd probably go see it. I, I, mm. I don't think I'm super excited for it. Um this is, but you know, I reckon it'll be. From what I heard, it's just really long. Yeah, I've heard it's long. I've heard it's not his best one, but that's you know, tough I mean, to I'm be. I'm hearing like, different. Yeah, when you have opinions. five films, though, it's like very unlikely it's going to be the best one. He's been Bond for like 15 years. That's insane. Yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy to think about. Like that's basically my lifetime. I'm like, I, I know for a fact that this one's not. A, this one's not as poorly regarded as, as Quantum of Solace. Like, okay. Um. Which is the one that, legitimately, it's easily the weakest of the five, I would assume. And mm-hmm. I'm going to probably say that is a safe bet. That even after, not, even not seeing this film, it's probably not going to be as weak as that film. Mm-hmm. But the two that everyone really likes are Skyfall and Casino Royale. Which I mentioned earlier in the show. Oh, there you go, that you did. Um, I haven't seen any of the Bond films, period. Which I know shocks a lot of people. Wow. I think part of me is sort of self-gatekeeping that I want to start from the very beginning. Even though there's absolutely no reason to. No. Um, but I've only ever seen the Craig ones. Yeah. So. Well, I, I was talking to Mal about this. Um, one of the guys I work with, who's you know done some big stuff, and he was talking about Bond to me, and I said I haven't seen any of them, and he was absolutely flabbergasted. But he said, just watch the Daniel Craig ones. It's fine. Like if you appreciate how silly the originals it's, are, go ahead. But otherwise, there's no point. I definitely think it's a generational thing. Mm. Like the the beauty of the Bond films is it's so generationally based. Like there'll be one after him. And we might not even watch those ones, but the generation that precedes us will watch them. You know, my like my my mum grew up with with um what Brosnan and um some of the other ones. I don't know. She, like she Sean bit, Connery and she, stuff. No, Connery or... was older than my mum. Connery's okay. like the would be our grandparents' as Bond, basically. Um, what would? Well, maybe I guess. I mean, our grandparents. Connery are... came like you got to think. My like my mum was born in nineteen fifty eight, and Connery was the Bond in like the the, the early sixties. So well, the early sixties is the very first one, yeah. Yeah, I think sixty two. He's the first. He's the first Bond. Is he? Isn't he? He's no, second. He's, he's, he's the second. The first one. I don't it's think. The second is he? Okay. See, I haven't seen any of them, so I don't. Yeah. This conversation my goes in my head. Frankly, watched the original Bonds. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Oh yeah, I won't get too pedantic about it because I forget what year comes out when. I know Stephen. Started a bond binge. I'm thinking I got a few in though. Okay, but um, twenty five of them. Hmm? Twenty five of them. So yeah, there's, there's quite a few of them now. Um, the power of the dog sees a dominating rancher respond with mocking cruelty 
when his brother brings home a new wife and son, and that is until the unexpected comes to pass. It mm. stars Benedict Cumberbatch, Kirsten Dunst, Jesse Plemons, and Thomas and Mackenzie. Hey, there you go. She's working, working hard. I love hard it. Working. Yeah. Tick, tick, boom is Delin Manuel Morada's uh, feature debut for the Hamilton fans out there. Sees Andrew Garfield as a promising young theatre composer, navigating love, friendship, and the pressures of life as an artist in New York City. See, musical fans, you've mm-hmm. got that to look forward to. I think that actually does come to Netflix next week. So, right. if you want to catch any theatres, you've got a very small window. And if you are not, uh, if you are patient, then yeah, you just have to wait a week. Mm-hmm. So, that's not too bad. And finally, based on a series of tweets, Zola is uh, about a Detroit waitress seduced into a weekend of stripping in Florida for some quick cash before the trip becomes a sleepless 48-hour odyssey involving a nefarious friend, her pimp, and her idiotic boyfriend. So this film is previewing at Lunar Leaderville this Wednesday the 10th, and then I think it gets a full release a week or two from now. Right. But um, this film's been... I mean, it's an A24 film. A lot of people have been talking about it for... It's been out forever, like The Green Knight. So we're only just getting it now. Mm. But um, I'm kind of 50... Like, I'm not that excited for it, personally. I'm sure it's interesting. The fact that it is based on literal tweets and sort of this whole new world of, you know, based on, you know, previous texts. And it's like, it's not a book or a play or a game. It's a it's a tweet. <laughs> it's point, interesting. Uh, 3.6 on... Letterbox. Okay. So it's around the same score as actually last night in Soho right now. I don't think it's divisive in that... I'm sure it is divisive to some extent um, in terms of what it's about and just... It feels very... um, Oh, my God. A good time. It feels very good time-esque in Mm. a lot of ways, which is interesting. Um, It's like the... It's Black Panther for young 20s women. (laughs) No dramas. Well... Jake, we're not catching on mm. any of those next week on no, the show. We're not. We are deferring to uh, a film that's been out for a while. But Jake, what are we watching? Yeah, so next week on the show, Zeke, we're watching Fantastic Mr. Fox. And so it begins. Welcome to the fantastic world of Mr. Fox. Woo! Should we dance? His life is fantastic. <laughs> Pure wild animal craziness. His wife is fantastic. If what I think is happening is happening, it better not be. His neighbors, not so fantastic. This is Boggus, Bunce, and Bean, three of the meanest, nastiest, ugliest farmers in his valley. What was that? They're digging us up. But they're about to discover. Oh, Foxy, is help on the way? He's one fox. I've got an idea. You can't outfox. Mole, what do you got? I can see in the dark. We can use that. Rabbit, I'm fast. Badger, demolitions expert. What? Since when? Here, put these bandit hats on. I don't have a bandit hat, but I modified this tube sock. We look good. Yeah, we do. Bored with his current life, Mr. Fox plans a heist against the three local farmers. The farmers, tired of sharing their chickens with the sly fox, seek revenge against him and his family. This is obviously uh, the first of the stop-motion animation feature films by one Wes Anderson, who we talked a little bit about earlier in the show, who mm. has a film coming out at the end of the month. Yeah, yeah. So there's a couple of preview screenings coming out later for The French Dispatch. I mean, the film's already out in the US and places like that. And it seems that you know people really enjoy it. I think there are some critiques, but 
we'll obviously decide for ourselves in the next few weeks. Yeah, I'm really um, happy we're doing this film. I was thinking about yeah. this film during the week. I was like, man, I'd love to do this on the show. Because I haven't seen this film since it came out 12 years ago. Yeah. Wow. That's, so. that's yeah, that's crazy. Because I saw this for the first time maybe two years ago. And I remember it was the closest I ever gave to giving a film a five-star review before setting back on the four and a half. Which tells you it's a pretty good damn film. <laughs> Very excited to bring it to you next week. Thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with fantastic Mr. Fox. <laughs> <laughs>